0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. You know, our, our great comfort is in knowing God, recalling His limitless power, His sovereign goodness in all things, that He provides for us, that He is gracious to us, that we exist For his kingdom and glory. And with this in mind, please uh, join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, by the providence of God, there are some amazing, comforting truths in Acts chapter 9. Throughout this book, we are learning about Christ's kingdom and his power and glory. And in Acts 9, we see one of the most powerful and glorious events in all of history, one that impacts each of us today. So follow along as I read verses 1 to 19 of Acts 9. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regained his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name Before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. Well, we've come to one of the most significant events in the history of the Christian faith, and thus the world. It is so significant that Luke writes of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus three times. in Here in chapter 9, then again in chapters 22 and 26. Calvin describes this as the Lord bringing him under control when he was like a wild animal. And making him a new person. So think of it. The... The majority of our New Testament is written by this man. Teachings that are central to Christian theology, such as our union with Christ or being in Christ, the doctrine of justification by faith, the significance of Christ's death and resurrection are all a result of this conversion. Some have said that without Paul there would be no Augustine, Luther, or Wesley. William J. Larkin said that the most important event in human history apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. And this impacts us as well. With no conversion of Saul To Paul, you know, there'd be no Westminster Seminary. No theologically sound teaching from Pastor Dale. Who was so instrumental in shaping each of us. So here we are. We're looking at an event that God used to change the world. But prior to this Damascus Road encounter, Luke tells us a little bit about Saul. At the end of chapter 7, we read that the men who stoned Stephen laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in the next chapter, we're told that Saul approved of his execution. And that Saul was ravaging the church entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. This is Saul. And then in chapter 8, we have this wonderful interlude of Philip picking up the role of Stephen and bringing the gospel to Samaria. And then as Saul Saul travels north to stamp out the church, God sends Philip south. To the Ethiopian eunuch who will take that gospel seed and plant it in northern Africa. And probably Augustine is impacted. So now Luke takes us back to the north where Saul is He's in this leadership role, receiving letters of authority to go into the various synagogues of Damascus and arrest any who are of the way. The way before believers were called Christians, apparently they were known as the way, a term that that recognizes God is that His only way of salvation is through Christ, that Jesus is. The true Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 1 describes Saul as breathing threats of murder. And what Luke has in mind is not not an inhale, not a breathing in, but, but a breathing out. It's a snort. Picture a wild beast snorting. And they tend to snort right before they charge and kill. Saul wants to capture. He wants to bring these believers back to Jerusalem where they're going to be imprisoned and likely executed. And once again we wonder, why? Why so much anger and hatred and, and even a desire to kill? And our conclusion must land on the reality of a spiritual battle going on. It speaks, to the, it speaks to the ongoing beauty and convicting truth of Jesus, because this kind of evil, martyring people for their faith, well, it's occurred all throughout church history. It's occurring right now in different parts of the world. It also speaks to the fact that Jesus was triumphant over death that he is alive and he is active in his church and satan continues to bear the fruit of wild rage blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the who is the image of god there's a battle in the unseen realm and ironically Saul's mind was blinded before his physical eyes were. He thought he was zealously working for God to stamp out heresy and preserve Judaism. He thought it was a a good work that pleased God. And yet Satan had blinded his mind from the reality of God's way. Jesus, the Messiah. So Saul is not simply a, a brute. He's He's a great intellect who's zealous about his faith. He's walking what he believes. At this time, Saul, he's described as a young man, born in the city of Tarsus, the capital city of Cilicia, on the southern coast of what is modern Turkey today. In in chapter 21, Paul describes Tarsus as no obscure city. It was a place of great commerce and education, its university equaling that of Athens and Alexandria. And so Saul, Saul was a Hellenistic Jew, very familiar with the Greek language and culture, educated in it, even quoting three of their greatest poets in Acts 17 and then in the book of Titus. So he knows this. He has ties to Greek culture and learning, and thus the name Paul. And he's also zealous for Judaism, becoming a Pharisee and going by his Hebrew name of Saul. In Acts 22, we discover that that Paul's a Roman citizen. Something uncommon for a Jew, suggesting that his, his family, maybe his father or grandfather, was granted some official citizenship for some service done for the city of Tarsus. So in following the, the religion of his fathers, he, he went by the name Saul. And when he became the apostle to the Gentiles, he used his Roman or Gentile name of Paul. Surrounded by Greek culture and its many gods and goddesses, Saul chose and pursued the religion of his fathers. He was he was a Pharisee. And we hear that and that's like, ugh. (laughs) No, No, a Pharisee in that day was that was very positive. Meaning that he he studied, he obeyed the law, he he thoroughly observed ceremonial ritual. And he wouldn't be able to do this living in Tarsus. So he must have spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, pursuing his faith, he became a Pharisee of Pharisees, studying under the, the leading rabbi of the day, Gamaliel, who was the grandson of the founding father of Phariseeism. So Paul tells us of his success. He tells us of his commitment as a Pharisee. In his, he tells us this in his letter to the Galatians. Where we read him saying, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. As a Pharisee, he was considered blameless. And yet, after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he eventually writes the book of Romans. Where he recognizes that all, both Jews and Greek, they're not blameless. We're all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He's on this Damascus road thinking that he's following after God. No one seeks for God. Ethiopian eunuch looked like he was seeking God, but God was seeking him. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one, no one really does good. Not even one. Prior to his conversion, he thought of himself as righteous, blameless in his zeal for Jewish purity that required, that required this wrathful elimination of what he considered to be a dangerous heretical cult. And this zeal led him to overseeing and approving the death of Stephen. It it led to getting permission and authority to take this six-day, 140-mile journey to Damascus, intending to kill, to stamp out this heretical, dangerous cult in his mind. He thought he was seeking God. But Satan had blinded his mind. And now we see that God sought him. Reading, but suddenly, suddenly a, a light from heaven shone around him. Is anything too difficult for God? I mean, think of it. Who this man was. Is anything too difficult for God? If God can suddenly transform such an extreme case, a wild beast who's dragging men and women out of their homes to kill them, He can do so with your loved one. That seems like an impossibility in your mind. That person who wants nothing to do with Christ. Is anything too difficult for God? Keep praying. Don't give up. Saul's conversion is extreme. It's dramatic. It's sudden. In the hands of Almighty God, the the greatest persecutor of the church is, is suddenly changed and will eventually become the greatest instrument of salvation. It's not the typical experience, is it? And yet it is. Your conversion probably didn't look like this. And yet, on a spiritual level, we have a lot in common. I doubt any of you were violent persecutors planning to murder Christians and then encountered a flash of, of light, a bright uh, a light like a bolt of Of lightning knocking you off of a horse, where you heard the voice of Jesus and you needed to be led by the hand to a place where you fasted for three days, receiving a miraculous healing and a calling to go and change the world. I doubt that that hasn't, that's not our experience, is it? You know, as I've shared before, my experience wasn't very dramatic at all. And yet it was. I'm not even, as I've shared, I'm not even sure when I was saved. I don't have a date written in my Bible. Um, I remember saying a prayer when I was around three or four. Uh, and that could have been the day. But looking back, there, you know, there really wasn't any change or fruit for ten years or so. And salvation, we recognize, it's so much more than, than praying the right words. So I'm, I'm not sure of the day that I was saved as much as I, you know, I just simply found myself believing. And now I realize the great blessing of a Christian family who raised me in the church where I heard the gospel and I had mentors and people who, Discipled me, encouraged me, and I just found myself believing and eventually growing. Uh, Not very exciting testimony. And yet, on a spiritual level, God, as he did with Saul, gave me a new heart. You know, when I was a teen, dramatic testimonies were really cool. And I probably wish that I was a part of a biker gang, knocked off my Harley, experiencing some radical transformation. Um, But now I love my testimony. It speaks to the beauty and importance of Christ's church. And the role of parents, you parents, to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So your are you know, it might be like mine. Or maybe it's more dramatic like Paul's. But what matters most is a, is a genuine faith. A faith that grows and bears fruit and loves Jesus more and more. That's what matters. Here's what we have in common with Paul. He wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 4. It's a description that... that outwardly it resembles this encounter on the Damascus road outwardly it looks sounds like he has he must have had that in mind when he wrote these words but what he's really communicating is what happened to all of us on this concerning this supernatural change that happens inside of each of us that the very God who said, let light shine out of darkness in creating all things, this God, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul had an outward encounter with Jesus that that involved this heavenly light. And and each of us share the same spiritual reality of God speaking light into our hearts. Enabling us to rightly see and experience the very same Jesus. And, and as a result, we respond in faith. We love because He first loved us. If you know and love Jesus, God spoke light into your previously blinded heart. The author of life created something within you and graciously gave you a a realization of his glory in the one and only Savior, Jesus. So what do we have in common with Saul? Well, first we see that he was radically transformed and so are all true believers. In Galatians 1.16, Paul says that that God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. More literally, God was ple- pleased to reveal His Son in me. His experience, Paul's experience was both objective and subjective. Objectively, there there actually was a light so bright that it stunned him blinding him, knocking him off of his horse. And and there was this audible voice that he heard. A voice that reminds us of the voice of God at Jesus' baptism or on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knew it was deity. The word Lord in his reply is not sir. It's deity. A voice from heaven that others heard. It was audible. It was an objective experience because verse 7 tells us that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Not not just some vision, not just some experience. This was an objective reality going on here. But Paul also had this inward experience of 2 Corinthians 4, a radical transformation where God revealed His Son, not only to, but in Saul, at every level. He was confronted with the risen Christ and forced to respond both internally and externally. Inwardly, he's he's overcome by the authority of Jesus. He's like, he's like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You know, standing before the, in the throne room of God with the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. He's undone. He's, he's a puddle on the floor before the king, seated upon the throne, who is holy, holy, holy. And outwardly, Saul falls to the ground blinded. The persecutor is stopped in his tracks and he's immediately transformed from darkness to light, from persecutor to devoted servant. And from this point on, he has a new vision and understanding both of Jesus and himself. From this point on, he will press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if you truly know Jesus, you too will press on. You too, like Pastor Dale, will finish the race set before you, enduring to the very end. Salvation is not a prayer. It's not saying some magic words. It's the upward call of God who speaks light into our hearts and shows us His glory in the face of Jesus. And this begins the race. But our pace may differ. At Pastor Dale's homegoing, his son Stephen was remembering some of the marathons that they did together. And someone asked him, Did you run with your dad? And Stephen said, No, I wanted to get it over with. Plus, he ran way too slow because he liked to talk to people along the way. (laughs) It pretty much describes him, doesn't it? Our races are different, but we're all in the same race. And this radical transformation of God means that we'll not only run, but finish in God's time. It's a radical transformation. We've been brought from darkness to light, from death to life, by the sovereign command of God. A second truth that we share is that we were previously mistaken. At the sound of Jesus' voice, can you imagine just how mistaken Saul must have felt? Saul believed that Jesus was dead and buried somewhere, hidden somewhere, and that all of this talk of his resurrection was was just a deceitful lie that he needed to stamp out. And now suddenly he hears the words, "Saul, Saul." Why are you persecuting me? When a name is repeated like this, it communicates an urgency. It's like when you hear your mom use your full name. She means business. And Saul must have had that terrible... Sinking feeling in his gut, realizing that he must be very, very wrong in his actions. Have you ever heard a voice from the sky? Probably not. Uh, okay, I have a confession to make. When I was a boy, you know, remember? I don't know if you knew this. My family. Uh, uh, lived in an unusual place, right on Main Street downtown Metford. We had a Christian bookstore. It's the uh, Republican headquarters now, right? You know that that building that has its windows knocked out all the time by peaceful protesters. <laughs> anyway, um, so we lived downtown, grew up there. You know, no no neighbors, and uh, my dad um, had a little doorbell installed with a speaker. And and an intercom system, so we could ask who it is and come down and let them in. And, uh, well, my brothers and I used to have fun with that intercom speaker uh, over our front door. It was an unusual place to live. And there was this one man uh, living on the streets, drunk and screaming most of the time. Kind of scary. And I've been thinking about this. Somehow... We knew that his name was George. How would we know his, this scary drunk guy's name? I don't know. But everyone knew George. He just wandered around the streets of downtown Medford, laughing strangely and shouting and cursing. And You know, I imagine that we startled him one day. As we waited for him to walk by our storefront, and we used the voice from the sky... And he heard the words, George, this is God speaking. And George George didn't reply like Saul, saying, who are you, Lord? Uh, Clearly, as Saul hears a command coming from heaven with no giggles in the background, uh, he knew this was actual deity. And when he hears the reply, I am Jesus, again like Isaiah who is utterly undone, recognizing his sin, that he's a man of unclean lips, so Saul must have been utterly undone in the realization, how could he ever be so wrong as this, persecuting the God he thought he was defending. Oh, he was so mistaken, so wrong about Jesus. Not only in that he, he's clearly not dead, but that he's also no mere man. He's the holy God who is seated in authority over him. Have you ever accused someone of doing wrong or of sin and then you realize you were wrong? Have you ever accused God in the midst of, of a great suffering, thinking or saying that he is not good? If you have, then you may know a little bit of what Saul felt. A little bit because he was so incredibly zealous and sure, and he acted upon it. But then the actual voice of Jesus, in an instant, gave him the ultimate sinking feeling That he was altogether wrong. And what we share with Saul is that when we come to Jesus, we too are confronted with our sin. Which tells us, oh, we're mistaken. Our actions are altogether wrong. That we've been heading in the wrong direction. And then God in his mercy grants us repentance. That realization that we can turn from our sin. We can turn to Jesus in faith and follow him. A third truth, a a glorious truth that we share with Paul is our union with Christ. And Saul first understood this great reality. When he heard that he was not merely persecuting Jesus' followers, but he was persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus' words must have shocked Saul. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? No, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? This is one of the most incredible truths I've ever learned. Still I'll grapple with it the rest of my life, but when you think about it, experientially, what this tells us Jesus is with his people. He's truly with us. He's with us to the degree that our suffering is not simply observed by Him. He's not with us in heart or desire. He's not just sympathetically praying for us from a distance. No, He's near to the brokenhearted. To the point of hurting along with us. Isn't that always comforting when when you have someone come alongside, and they're not just there, but they're weeping with you, they're hurting with you. That's the sense that we get the reality of Jesus. Of he knows everything perfectly. And yet we know that he weeps. He weeped at Lazarus' tomb. He's weeping with us. Our current grief at the loss of our dear pastor and friend who is also a husband and a brother and an uncle and a father and a grandpa. If you're in Christ, you're united. And Jesus is truly with you and cares for you you're not alone that means a ton you're not alone our union with christ it's glorious it's wonderful it's it's a comforting truth in john chapter 14 jesus told his disciples that even though he was going away he would never leave them as orphans In sending the Holy Spirit to them, Jesus said that he would be with them and in them. And the conclusion is not only that the Holy Spirit is with and in them, but that Jesus is as well. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Oh, it's mysterious, isn't it? It's a mysterious and wonderful truth. Jesus is not only sympathetic toward you, He's with you, in union with you, to the point of saying that your suffering is, is His suffering. There's no greater comfort. It's not some nice sentimental thought. It's a key biblical truth. It's one of Paul's most profound teachings. It's not simply a metaphor when he, when he teaches that even when we were dead in, tr- in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, it's mysterious. It's hard to comprehend. But there's a reality. There's a reality to the work and presence of Christ. And this is, why, this is why dining at the Lord's table, it's so much more than a mere remembrance. It is a remembrance. It's so much more than that. He's with us. He's with us in this meal in a very special way. We taste and we see. It's tangible that the Lord is good. And we receive this means of grace that strengthens and nourishes our souls. It's precious. His death is connected to you. His resurrection life is yours. For by grace through faith, you are in Christ, in union with him. So when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. Saul was confronted with this great truth at his conversion, and he emphasizes it all throughout the New Testament. It's one of the most precious truths to know that in every trial that we face, we may be assured that, Our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. And a fourth truth is that we, like Paul, have been chosen by God. In verse 10, we see that Jesus not only uh, spoke to Saul, but he also spoke to a devoted disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And can you imagine the the shock when Ananias was told by Jesus to go to the house of Judas and look for Saul of Tarsus? I know that name. That's not good. They he's to go lay hands on him and restore his sight. Saul's reputation preceded him. He, we, we have to admire the, the courage and faith of Ananias to go as God commanded, bringing healing and encouragement to the man they feared would have them tortured and killed. But the Lord reassured him, saying, Go, for he is, I love this description, a chosen instrument a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Ananias was chosen. Saul was chosen. And if you know and love Jesus, you were chosen. And don't you love this this description of being a, a chosen instrument? To think of yourself as an instrument in God's hand chosen for his good purposes. It's a description that reminds us of the vessels and various tools in the temple. It's a picture of God's grace because these, those instruments for the temple, they weren't chosen because they were intrinsically special or holy. They were, they were just common things. But they were chosen and then they, they're set apart. They're consecrated or made holy to be used for God's purposes. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. It's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Just like those tools, not intrinsically special, but God chose to make holy, suitable for His holy purposes. Paul teaches this in Romans nine, quoting from Exodus thirty-three, anticipating our objection that God's choosing well it just doesn't seem fair to us. He writes. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It didn't depend on Saul's will or exertion. No, it was... It was God's mercy in choosing him. And once again, there is great mystery in this, in in our relationship with God. But the fact is, like Saul, Christ died for us when we were his enemies. Who better to teach the grace of God and this great truth than Saul the persecutor? The enemy of Christ who was chosen, who was set apart and made holy according to the purpose of God's will. Using him as an instrument in his sovereign hand. An instrument in his sovereign hand in writing most of our New Testament. And shaping Christian theology. The apostle to the Gentiles. Like the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not really us seeking God. But rather God comes after us. Using whatever instrument he chooses. In that case Philip. Using whatever instrument he chooses to bring us to himself. In Acts 26 we we read of Jesus saying something other than what's given to us in this account in chapter 9. Um, Say more than, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, Paul describes it. This He also said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were spikes placed behind an animal pulling a cart. A young, unbroken animal would tend to kick back With its rear leg when prodded along, and the spike or goad would teach them to submit and not fight against the master. Luke describes Saul as being like a wild, snorting animal wanting to destroy. And so Jesus tells Saul, It's hard for you when you kick against the goad. Don't resist. It only makes it harder for yourself. I'm the master. Just as Saul didn't seek and choose Jesus, just as Abraham didn't seek after God, but God chose to make him the father of his people. Likewise, if you know and love Jesus, it's because he lovingly chose to say, stop resisting. I've decided to have mercy on you and make you my chosen instrument for my good purposes. C.S. Lewis described this as being like the great angler playing a fish, or a cat chasing a mouse, or a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, or chess player moving in to the ultimate checkmate. God is sovereign. Nothing can thwart his purposes. And what we see here in Acts is Jesus Jesus closing in on Saul, setting him apart, preparing him as as an instrument that would forever change the world. Pastor Dale, he was a wonderful instrument in the hand of God in our lives. Our lives are changed because of that. Because of the instrument of Pastor Dale in the hand of an almighty God. Because of that grace. And a great change that he brought about through Pastor Dale was to teach and to model and to encourage us to get outside of ourselves. You can hear him saying that. Get outside. Be about others. Get to know. Serve. Consider others more significant than yourself. You're an instrument in God's hand. And the great truth that we are chosen by God should bring hope for the loved ones in your life. Ones who are mistaken about Jesus. If God can intervene in the life of the most feared persecutor of the church, if He can stop him in his tracks and radically transform him, if he can send Ananias to minister to him and graciously call him brother, then keep thinking of yourself as an instrument in the hand of the same sovereign Lord. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Keep praying for God to speak into a dark heart and create light and give them the real the right realization of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise for your glorious grace. Your grace in loving us and choosing us and calling us to be set apart and used for your good purposes. Thank you for calling Pastor Dale. Thank you for using him in so many, so many great and wonderful ways. Lord make us mindful of the truth that we too are instruments in your hand. Give us a growing confidence in your word, in the presence of Christ, that he is with us, helping and comforting. We pray for this help and comfort, especially for Nancy and the Metter family. Help them to know and experience the the loving presence of Jesus. We praise you. We praise you for your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.